The House returns today with first vote set for 6.30 p.m. The House is scheduled to hold its last vote no later than 3 p.m. Thursday. The Senate also returns today with first vote set for 5.30 p.m. The Senate will stay in session through Thursday because it's the Senate and they don't like working on Fridays. Last week on the House floor, the House came back to work last Monday. They took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, they took up and passed H.R. 3441, the Save Local Business Act. The bill passed by a vote of 242 to 181. Then they passed H.R. 3911, the Risk-Based Credit Examination Act, under suspension of the rules by a vote of 389 to 32. On Wednesday, the House voted for the rule to consider H.R. 2201, the Micro-Offering Safe Harbor Act. They also took up and passed H.R. 4173, the Veterans Crisis Line Study Act of 2017, under suspension of the rules. Then they took up and passed H.R. 3043, the Hydropower Modernization Act, by a vote of 257 to 156. Later that day, the House took up and passed H.R. 3705, the Veterans Fair Debt Notice Act of 2017, under suspension of the rules by a vote of 422 to 10. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H.R. 2201, the Micro-Offering Safe Harbor Act, by a vote of 232 to 188, and then they were done. This week on the House floor, the House returns today with four bills teed up for consideration under suspension of the rules and one resolution. On Tuesday, they'll bring up three more bills under suspension of the rules. Then they're scheduled to move to consideration of H.R. 2810, the conference report to accompany the National Defense Authorization Act, and H.R. 2874, the 21st Century Flood Reform Act. On Wednesday, the House will consider five more bills under suspension of the rules. The House Rules Committee has scheduled a meeting for Wednesday to consider the rule for H.R. 1, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, so I expect we'll see that on the floor Thursday. And then they'll be done, and they'll be gone for their Thanksgiving break. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate came back to work last Tuesday and voted to confirm John Gibson to be Deputy Chief Management Officer of the Department of Defense. The vote to confirm was 91 to 7. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Stephen Engel to be Assistant Attorney General. And then later that same afternoon, the Senate voted to confirm him to that job. Both the vote to invoke cloture and the vote to confirm were 51 to 47. Later Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Peter Robb to be general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. And on Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm him. The vote to confirm was 49 to 46. Later Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of William Wareham to be the assistant administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that job. The vote to confirm was 49 to 46. Later Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Derek Kahn to be Undersecretary of Transportation for Policy. This week on the Senate floor, they'll return today with the first vote scheduled for 5.30 p.m. That'll be a vote to confirm Derek Kahn to be Undersecretary of Transportation for Policy. Then we'll see more votes on nominations for the rest of the week. Stephen Bradbury to serve as General Counsel of the Department of Transportation. David Zetzelo to be Assistant Secretary of Labor. Joseph Otting to be Comptroller of the Currency. Donald Coggins Jr. to be a federal district judge in South Carolina, and Dabney Langhorn Friedrich to be a federal district judge in the District of Columbia. On the AT&T-Time Warner merger, the Department of Justice has told AT&T that it would have to divest either the Turner Television Unit, which includes CNN, or DirecTV in order to win the department's approval for the merger. Rather than go along with that divestment, AT&T is said to be preparing for a court battle. 
And according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, arguing the opposition is politically motivated since there is no overlap between the two companies' business lines, end quote. On the Clinton email front, an early May 2016 draft of former FBI Director James Comey's statement terminating the Clinton email investigation says she had been, quote, grossly negligent in her handling of classified information, according to newly reported memos to Congress. That tough language was softened significantly before the memo was released. Comey merely charged her with being extremely careless in her handling of classified information. That change is significant because federal law says that gross negligence can be punished criminally with fines or incarceration. Said the original draft, quote, there is evidence to support a conclusion that Secretary Clinton and others used the email server in a manner that was grossly negligent with respect to the handling of classified information, end quote. According to a source who has seen the original draft, that original version was softened on or around June 10. The documents sent to Congress did not include information indicating who recommended the textual changes. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Charles Grassley sent a letter last week to current FBI Director Christopher Wray demanding to know who made the changes and what was his or her thinking. In other Clinton email news, last Friday, U.S. District Judge James Bosberg dismissed a pair of lawsuits from Judicial Watch and Cause of Action Institute that were seeking to force the State Department to continue its search for Hillary Clinton's emails. This same judge's earlier ruling dismissing the suits was overturned by a panel of the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals. So we'll have to say what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals does now. On the guns front, as of Labor Day, Representative Richard Hudson's H.R. 38, the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act of 2017, has 212 co-sponsors in the House. Importantly, the 209th member of Congress to add his name as a co-sponsor is Representative Bob Goodlatt of Virginia, who is serving his last term as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction over the bill. In the Senate, the companion legislation is Senator John Cornyn's S-446, the Constitutional Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act of 2017. That bill has 38 co-sponsors. These bills would do just what they sound like they would do. They would amend federal law to allow qualified individuals, quote, to carry a concealed handgun into or possess a concealed handgun in another state that allows its residents to carry concealed firearms, end quote. Despite near-majority support in the House and significant support in the Senate, neither bill has moved out of committee. On the IRS front, the good news is IRS Commissioner John Koskinen's term of office is done as of last week, and we can't say good riddance fast enough. On his way out the door, he took his revenge on the Republicans he thinks made his life miserable for the last four years by having the IRS finally begin to enforce Obamacare's employer mandate. At his direction, the IRS sent, has sent out thousands of penalty letters to businesses the IRS believes are not complying with that employer mandate. No one is sure just how many businesses could be hit with penalties and interest, but by some estimates cited by the Wall Street Journal, it will be in the tens of thousands. The Congressional Budget Office estimated in 2015 that employers would owe $9 billion in fiscal year 2016 and $13 billion in fiscal 2017. On the judiciary front, our allies at Judicial Crisis Network last week announced a campaign to support the confirmation of Kyle Duncan to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals based in New Orleans. The two-week ad campaign features a Duncan testimonial by Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry. 
Duncan was one of the attorneys representing the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty in the Hobby Lobby Obamacare Challenge. Speaking of Obamacare, last Wednesday, the Congressional Budget Office released its score for repealing Obamacare's individual mandate. According to CBO, repealing the individual mandate would save the federal government $338 billion over the next decade and would result in 13 million more people being uninsured. Of course, we would say that's 13 million more people exercising their own health care freedom to make their own decision not to buy a product they can't afford and don't want. House and Senate Republican leaders are still considering whether or not they should add a provision repealing Obamacare's individual mandate to the tax reform bills currently working their way through House and Senate. No decisions have yet been made other than the House Republican leadership's decision not to add Obamacare individual mandate repeal to the House version of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act during the Ways and Means Committee markup session last week. On the Russia probe, the best piece of analysis in a long time on the Russia probe is Kim Strassel's last Friday column in the Wall Street Journal, entitled Lifting the Steel Curtain. She makes the argument that the Steele dossier, constructed by a former British intelligence agent working for Fusion GPS for its clients, the Clinton for President campaign and the Democratic National Committee, is, quote, one of the dirtiest tricks in U.S. political history, end quote. As she points out, it's the first time in memory that a campaign commissioned opposition research on its opponent, then took the results of that opposition research, handed it to the federal government, which then began an investigation of its claims, and then leaked the existence of the investigation to the media, leading the media to write that the campaign's opponent was under investigation by the federal government. I commend the entire column to your attention, and you'll find it in this week's suggested reading. On the spending front, we're now less than one month away from Congress's December 8th deadline to pass a bill funding the government, and by all accounts, they're going to need more time. So look for both House and Senate to pass a short-term continuing resolution after they come back from the Thanksgiving break. I expect that extension will last less than a month, so they can finalize details on an omnibus spending package that will get us through the end of the fiscal year next September, and then bring that bill to the floor for a vote before Christmas. Of course, they didn't plan on a hurricane spending the supplemental appropriations bill, so even a Christmas deadline may be optimistic. One senior Republican legislative aide quoted by The Hill suggested, quote, that is an unrealistic timeline. It will take at least a solid legislative month once we get a top line, end quote. On the tax reform front, after a four-day markup session last week, the House Ways and Means Committee on Thursday finally approved on a 24-16 party-line vote, H.R. 1, the, job, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, and sent it to the Rules Committee for floor consideration. As mentioned above, House leaders currently plan to bring the tax reform bill to the floor of the House on Thursday of this week. The bill cuts the corporate rate from 35% to 20%, shrinks the number of brackets on the individual side from 7 to 4, and cuts tax rates for all incomes under $1 million. As amended, it would eliminate the tax deduction for state and local income and sales taxes, but would allow for a deduction of up to $10,000 for property taxes. Importantly, changes were made during the markup session that brought on board the National Federation of Independent Business, which endorsed the bill after it came out of markup on Thursday. Congressman Steve King got a long-sought provision added, which would save an estimated $20 billion by requiring people claiming the child tax credit to provide a Social Security number for their child to prevent illegal immigrants from claiming that credit. The popular adoption tax credit was restored during the markup session. 
Meanwhile, Senate Republican leaders unveiled their version of tax reform last Thursday. The Senate bill contains both many similarities to and significant differences from the House bill. While both bills drop the top corporate rate from 35% to 20%, the Senate version delays that tax reduction for one year so it doesn't go into effect until 2019. This would have two effects, one fiscal and one economic. On the fiscal front, delaying the tax cut by a year would reduce the so-called cost of the provision. That is, it would delay the drop in revenues collected by the Treasury that would be associated with a significant corporate rate cut. In the Senate, they're trying to fit the tax cut into a $1.5 trillion cut over 10 years, so all the tax cuts contained in the bill can be made permanent. On the economic front, we'd likely see a rush of businesses putting money toward capital investment as businesses took advantage of full expensing against a 35% tax rate rather than wait a year and lose that extra 15% savings. But as Art Laffer points out, that would also mean lots of tax avoidance and sheltering next year, and that would likely include more offshoring. A delay in the drop in the corporate tax rate would deter foreign investment from coming to the United States in 2018, and that could lead to a loss of revenue for the government, perhaps as much as $100 billion. There are other differences between the Senate bill and the House bill. In the Senate bill, though they cut taxes on the individual side, they dropped the tax rate to 38.5%. The Senate bill would also keep deductions for medical expenses and for student loan interest that the House bill eliminates. And the Senate bill would completely eliminate the deduction for state and local taxes rather than keeping the $10,000 deduction for property taxes now found in the House bill. That's because in the Senate, no Republican senators represent California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, or Connecticut, the high-tax states whose Republican House representatives have been pitching a fit. Further, the Senate bill would maintain the deduction for mortgage interest on loans up to $1 million, while the House bill cuts that threshold to $500,000. The Senate bill includes an increase in the child tax credit from $1,000 to $1,650, while the House bill raises it to $1,600. Senators Marco Rubio and Mike Lee say that $1,650 is still too low, and they're pushing to raise it to $2,000. I've included a link in the suggested reading to a piece from the Daily Signal that compares the House and Senate tax bills to current law. You just saw a chart that came from that article. The Senate Finance Committee will hold its markup session on the bill beginning this afternoon at 3 p.m., just a little while from now. More than 350 amendments have already been filed. On the Uranium One front, finally, last Tuesday evening, Republican Representative Andy Biggs led a special order on the House floor to discuss the Uranium One scandal. Joining him in the special order were Representatives Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, Trent Franks, Louis Gohmert, Scott Perry, Ted Yoho, and Jody Heiss. I've included a link to Representative Biggs' press release about the special order in the suggested reading, and from that press release, you can find links to video of each of the congressmen addressing this important topic. And that's our Washington Report for this week.